Our first scripture this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 16. Let us listen now for God's word to us. At that place, Elijah came to a cave, and he spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. There came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Let us listen again for God's word to us. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came, walking toward them on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became terrified and beginning to sink, He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. So today we, we pick up kind of at an awkward place, right in the middle of Elijah's story. And he's on the run. This is not his best moment in his illustrious career as a prophet. He's on the run because he's afraid for his life, because, because of his faithfulness to God and to God's commands. And they've gotten him into a bit of hot water with some of the powers that be. He has been a faithful prophet, faithful prophet that God called him to be, calling the people of Israel to repentance, to turn away from their idolatry, removing all of the false gods from their lands. But, again, this has gotten him into some trouble. Some folks are after him because he's making some waves, shaking things up a little bit. So this is undoubtedly the low point of Elijah's life and ministry. Just before this, before this piece of the text that we read, Elijah is is begging for the Lord to take his life away. He's done. He wants out. So he retreats by himself to this mountain, finds a cave that he can hide out in for the night. And the word of the Lord comes to him. God asks him what he's doing there, which might seem like a strange question for the omniscient creator of the universe, but Elijah obliges and responds very matter-of-factly. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Now what's funny about what Elijah says is that it's actually not completely true. That The implication here is that there is not a single faithful Israelite left in all the land. That every last one of them has turned their back on God and is worshiping these false idols. But this simply isn't the case. In fact, just before this, in chapter 18, we met Obadiah, who we are told reveres the Lord greatly. So there's one, at least, right? There's one. And then, just shortly after that, Elijah himself helped... uh, lead a ton of Israelite people to repentance, like a huge crowd of them, an untold mass of people. So at this point, at the point we meet Elijah in this story, he's so caught up in his own issues, blinded by his own fear, that he can't even recall the incredible things that God had already done through him, how God was using him to call the people back to him, and that they were responding, that it was actually going well. Or perhaps he was having trouble admitting to himself that he was, in fact, done. That he wanted out. He would rather die than continue to live as a prophet. And he couldn't bring himself to admit it. So God tells him, go stand on the mountain. For God, the Lord, is about to pass by. And then there's this series of powerful forces of nature that take place. There's, there's wind, this great wind that splits these rocks. There's an earthquake. There's fire. And after each one, we are told that God was not in any of them. And then something strange happens. It's so strange that, that translators have a hard time figuring out how to adequately render this. The King James calls it a still, small voice. Others call it a gentle whisper. A gentle blowing, or in the translation that we read, the sound of sheer silence. Now, unlike with the other elements, we're not told whether or not God was in whatever that thing was. 
But either way, once Elijah hears that silence or that whisper, if, if it were even possible, he gets up. So in some way, it moves him. After those things have passed, he is moved, and he goes to the entrance of the cave. And God again asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah responds in the exact same way that he did the first time. And at that moment, God realizes this is the end of Elijah's ministry. That even a genuine encounter with God himself will not stir him from this funk, will not wake him up, will not give him life. So God gives him three commands, three very simple tasks to do. <clears throat> Go back and anoint Hazael over king of Aram, anoint Jehu, king of Israel, and then anoint Elijah as prophet in your place. So God clearly is telling Elijah, your time has passed. God names Elijah's successor and tells him after he does these things, go, go hang it up. Essentially, God gives Elijah the Bobby Bowden treatment, right? Here's your guy. Go ahead. Even though he's had this incredible career of being this beloved prophet, of, of doing amazing things, you know, at this point, when Elijah is, is ready to say, God, just, just end my life. Just take my life away. God will not allow it to end so easily and so quickly. God wants Elijah to have a bit of a more graceful exit. So he sends Elijah back, and Elijah begins to go, as God commanded him. But when he gets back, he only actually does one of those three things. He jumps right to the last one, finds Elijah, Elisha, sorry, and passes the mantle onto him. God gives him three commands, and he only does one. He leaves his successor to do the other work. Elijah says, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm, ready, I'm just ready to hang it up. I'm ready to walk away. You know, it's funny, we, we often read these stories and wonder about you know, how amazing it would have been to have these kinds of personal and intense interactions with God. Yet then we also have stories like this of Elijah, one of the holiest and otherwise most obedient people that God ever called. A man who literally convenes and converses with God, yet walks away from this encounter completely unchanged. Essentially saying no to God. You know, I'll allow this ministry to continue. I'll name my successor, but I won't do those other things. And I think stories like this help us understand ourselves better. They help, us, they help us to see that the people we read about in Scripture, these holy men and women, they're just that. They're people, just like us. They're called, they're holy, set apart, yet broken, fragile, deeply flawed. And then, moving over to the Gospel story, there's Peter. Good old Peter. you got to love him. As Elijah wrestles with God in the midst of the storm, this earthquake and fire and wind, now we also see Peter and the other disciples in a storm of their own. Now this story happens immediately after the feeding of the 5,000 that we read the, uh, last week. Jesus stays back to dismiss the crowds, sends his disciples off in a boat to finally get to do what he was trying to do all along, which was be alone, be alone and to pray. And we're told that by the time evening rolls around, the boat is being battered by wind and waves. 
But what's interesting, and I never really noticed this before, is that it's not until the next morning that Jesus actually shows up. So they were left out in this storm all night long. So notice then that it's, it's their obedience to Jesus' instruction to go out. That's what sends them into the heart of this storm. Jesus tells them to go out, and while they're out there, they encounter a storm. And we often function with this idea that, that if we would just be faithful to what Jesus commands of us, then everything, it'll all be smooth sailing. It'll be calm waters. If we're just obedient enough, everything will be good. Our churches will grow. People will be happy. We'll be baptizing people left and right. Everything will be peachy, right? But sometimes, following Jesus' commands means being tossed right into the middle of a storm. We tend to think of Jesus only as the one who calms the storms, not the one who thrusts us into them. Just as Elijah's faithfulness led him into many, many storms, and just as the disciples' obedience to Jesus' instruction led them into this storm and many others that they faced, as followers of Christ, we too must be prepared to face many storms when we are faithful. And sometimes we'll have to sit in those storms for quite some time, just waiting for Jesus to show up. Now, some of these guys were experienced fishermen, right? So they may not have been too overwhelmed by this. They would have been used to some of these storms that were quite common in this region. And if you notice, it's not the storm itself that evokes fear for them. This is not quite like that storm earlier in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus is asleep on the boat. You remember that one? And they, they wake him up, so they say, we're about to die, why don't you save us? And then Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. This is not quite like that one. They're not exactly afraid of this storm. And in, in that story, remember, at the very end of the story, they ask the question, what, what sort of man is this, that the wind and the seas obey him? So remember that question. But this time is different. They're not afraid of this storm. Even though it has been battering their boat all night long, they can handle this. They've been through it before. What they fear is not the wind or the waves, but ironically, it's Jesus. They notice this figure walking out to them through the morning fog, and they don't recognize him. They don't know what this is, so they assume he must be a ghost. And so, sensing their fear, he shouts out to them, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. But even still, they have difficulty trusting their eyes and their ears, or at least Peter does. And so Peter does what any rational human being would do in such a situation. He says, if it's you, command me to step off the boat into the water. Right? Of course. And Jesus says, come. It's an invitation into the uncertain waters with no vessel to keep him afloat, no security, no safety net. Nothing but complete trust and reckless abandon. As we know, Peter's pretty good at that second part. A little iffy on the first one. It's an invitation right into the heart of the storm. And of course, we know how this story goes. Peter steps off, starts off really well. It's great. He's walking on water. Takes a few steps. We don't exactly know how far, but he's getting closer to Jesus. But then he hesitates because he notices the wind. And I, I can't say that I blame him. He, he begins to be a little bit afraid. So he begins to sink, and he cries out for Jesus to save him. Jesus, now, of course, Jesus does, and he pulls him back into the boat, and as soon as they get in the boat, 
the wind ceases and everything is calm. But then Jesus says to him, you of little faith. Seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that, I, mean I didn't see anybody else volunteering to, to hop out of the boat and walk onto the water. I mean, what? and, and he's, he gets onto him for doubting. Like, well, of course he doubted a little bit. This is crazy. People don't walk on water. You know, but I do wonder, what, what was it exactly that Peter doubted? Did he doubt his own ability to walk on the water because Jesus told him to? Did he doubt that Jesus would save him? You know, like maybe, why even cry out for help if Jesus is going to save you anyway? I don't know. Or is it the doubt that he didn't trust Jesus' voice in the first place? That if he had just believed Jesus at his word, that it is I, do not be afraid, that he never would have tried something so ridiculous and dangerous in the first place. Why did you doubt, Peter? There are many things I think that Peter doubted. But what we see is that once they get back in the boat and the wind and the waves calm, the disciples respond, truly, you are the Son of God. Answering that question from chapter 8, what sort of man is this? that the wind and the waves obey him. And so they begin to finally see, for the first time perhaps, that this man is the Son of God. Now, as we know, waters and storms are places of chaos, places of unpredictability, places that evoke and magnify fear. Now, both Peter and Elijah had trouble recognizing God in the midst of their storms. Elijah, you know, if he, if he had been able to trust God a little bit more, maybe he would have been able to be transformed and, and empowered to be the prophet that God continued to want him to be. And if Peter had been able to trust God, perhaps he wouldn't have tried to do something so ridiculous. Now, we would prefer, if all, all of our storms would be quieted immediately, we would prefer that as soon as we heard that earthquake or that wind or that fire or felt the, the waves around us, we would prefer that they would just be quieted, go away, have that be that. But as we know, it doesn't always work that way. So the question I think that we have is, can we trust that God's presence is with us even in the midst of those storms when we maybe hear his voice? Possibly in a still, small voice, a gentle whisper, or maybe the, sh the sound of sheer silence. Can we trust him when he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Because fear can cripple us, like it did to Elijah. Fear can cause us to do crazy things, like Peter, trying to prove something either to ourselves or to each other or even to God. So perhaps trust means just sitting in the boat sometimes, just sitting throughout the night, even as the waves are rising and the wind is growing stronger. Trusting that sometimes being obedient means being invited into the storm, not always safety and security from it. So as we face storms of many kinds, and we will. We will continue to face storms. May we learn to trust the voice of the one that we tremble to recognize.